host, Alex Garrett. And welcome inside to another edition of Alex Garrett Podcast. Before I get to my returning guest, Professor Jeffrey Kressler, who last year, uh, John Jay College uh, Librarian, Assistant Professor at the Lloyd Seeley Library, um, he wrote about his experience of how New York City saved his life. And he talked about the diversity that went in to saving his life. Well, on that diversity note, really quickly, I want to go back to George Washington, our very first president's first speech, our farewell speech. With shades of difference, you have the same religion, manners, habits, and common principles, political principles. You have in common cause fought and triumphed together for independence. The independence and liberty you possess are the work of your joint councils and joint efforts of common dangers, sufferings, and successes. When I hear that, I think of New York. I think that this is still our beautiful melting pot. We do have outdoor dining happening. We do have things somewhat coming back while others are closed long-term, like Broadway shows, which hopefully can be reversed pretty soon. That being said, and I'll get into all of this with Professor Kressler, but the big question I have um, to start today's podcast is this. We all have differences. And yet, we've really let those differences impact our way of life here in New York. We literally have one set of streets having boarded up businesses. Then we have another with outdoor dining and civility. So how can we join together again in New York, be the beautiful diversity we are, and thrive together? Well, I talked to Professor Kressler about just that and so much more. So uh, let's take a listen. Well, welcome back inside to Alex Garrett Podcasting. And uh, my next guest we've had on before, actually, he told his story of how he had to call 911. He's Dr. Jeffrey Kressler. He's at uh, John Jay College, the uh, Lloyd Seeley Library. And first of all, Dr. Kressler, having been through sickness, having been through a heart attack and surviving it, I've got to ask you this during COVID. How have you been feeling? I am uh, fine. I have recovered as much of my heart activity as I am going to recover. Uh, With a heart attack, there is always some damage, and I have some damage, but not enough to keep me from doing anything. So I am doing very well. Thank you. And uh, you you are considered at risk. So has that, I know, uh, has that weighed on your work? Has that weighed on the way you can perform? Are you in the city at all during this time? I have been in the city a couple of times. Uh, My place of work is completely shut down. The City University of New York is completely shut down, and it's at this time uncertain as to whether we will be uh, at all open in any way, shape, or form come the fall semester. Uh, But I don't, you know, categorically, I suppose I count as being at risk, having had uh, heart surgery and being over the age of 65. So I guess technically I am at risk. Do I feel as though I'm at risk? No, because I don't feel as though I have any underlying health issues that predispose me to this. Uh, it's just, I fit the, that profile. Well, and so I'm sure, I'm sure though you are, you're treating this as if you are, are, it, it sounds like you are now, 
you were able to get the help, right? You were able to call 911 last year. And the reason why I want to bring you back is because I feel like people don't think they have the option to call 911 or most certainly did not feel that through March and May. Would you agree with that, that they may not have felt comfortable going for other things than COVID if they were really sick? I think it's true that there was a decrease in the number of hospital admissions that were not COVID-related compared to a year before. Uh, What I mean is that, uh, and a uh, decrease in hospital treatments for certain diseases uh, from a year before. That would be a heart attack and, uh, I guess, asthma attacks and whatever other kind of ailments that would send someone to the emergency room, uh, diabetic shock, uh, any such thing, people would tend to stay away. Uh, I don't know that, uh, well, well, yeah, the, the, uh, the public discussion was don't go to the hospital unless you absolutely have to. And so some people would be sitting, yeah, I'm sure this isn't really anything. It'll go away tomorrow. And the, the fact of the matter is that the hospitals were in fact overwhelmed. Uh, I went to Elmhurst Hospital and wrote about that experience in an op-ed piece for the New York Daily News a year ago and was very impressed with the quality of care and the sensitive treatment I received from all of the staff, from the doctors on down to the people cleaning my room. It was magnificent. Uh, But in this case, what happened in March, April, was that an already stressed Elmhurst Hospital was completely overwhelmed. Their beds were filled. Their emergency room was overflowing. There were people outside the hospital wanting to get in. It uh, It was completely unprepared for this kind of situation. So I consider myself fortunate that it was normal. Oh, I have a heart attack? Let's call 911. And everything click, click, click right from there. Uh, But now when you call 911, you might have to wait a while during the worst of the COVID situation because uh, all the ambulances were out and busy. You say New York City saved your life. So I've got to ask you, if this happened this year, even during that hotspot time, but even now, would you... Would you not hesitate? Like, would you be the kind that say, you know what? I know the media is trying to scare us from going because they're just talking about COVID. But would you still call nine one one just on the prem, you know, principle of it if you had something go on during that time? Sure. What else am I going to do? What? What? You know, I I have to. You have to. You 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 have no choice. I mean, you can't say, oh, I'll be better tomorrow when you're suffering a heart attack. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I didn't know I was suffering a heart attack. All I knew was, and, and as I mumbled, staggering into the house, uh, I've never felt like this before in my life as I'm struggling to take my shoes off. And my brother-in-law says, that's it, 911. Uh, but, you know, I wasn't completely sure that anything out of the ordinary was happening, but something out of the ordinary certainly was. So... You know, there might be a tendency in that crisis uh, not to seek treatment. 
and in fact, the statistics show that uh, there was a decrease in hospital deaths and treatments of things like heart disease uh, during this this time. Uh, and that suggests that people were indeed staying away. Well, and that that to me is really a shame because I think all healthcare matters. Don't you agree? And I feel like we are kind of forgetting that when we listen to the media message and even our governor uh, message of just COVID, COVID, COVID. It makes you feel like all health doesn't matter, right? I was so excited that all of that attention was put on a uh, an institution like Elmhurst Hospital, which is chronically underfunded and chronically crowded and in, in over demand, if you can put it that way. Uh, and to hear Elmhurst Hospital be in the news, I was, I was excited that, oh good, this could mean that Elmhurst and the other stressed, permanently stressed public hospitals uh, will be uh, uh, getting some upgrades and attention. Um, one thing that did happen during this uh, was uh, a number, a, a group of photographers, world-class photographers, uh, put together something called Pictures for Elmhurst. And if you make a $150 donation uh, to, to Elmhurst Hospital through them, you get to select a print by one of these world-class photographers. Wow. And... And my wife found this just searching Elmhurst Hospital uh, for the for the heck of it about you know for information about everything, and uh, so we ordered photographs uh, at 150 a pop, and my wife sent out the announcement to her clients. She's an architect, and included the op-ed I wrote in the Daily News. New York City saved my life, and she got wonderful responses about the op-ed, and a lot of people ordered photographs. The punchline is how much money was raised by this international raise money for Elmhurst Hospital. $1.3 million. Mm. $1.3 million through $150 a pop photographs. Well, clearly those who still had a job or had a decent living during this felt compelled to help. And I did remember that because I took pictures in front of the hospital with the donations and it was just that was very moving. So thank you for for reminding us of that tonight. Uh, Dr. Kressler, you did write this article in the Daily News. I feel like you have a pulse on the city in some way, form or another. So are people coming to you talking about this? Are they venting to you? Are they saying, hey, how come... Maybe I couldn't get my health checked out, or how come this is going on? Have people reach out to you a lot during this time from March till now? Uh, no, my my impression was that uh, during this lockdown, during this imposed pause, uh, people, of course, kept physical distance. But I also got the the sense that that people were keeping communication distance. Uh, I wasn't getting a lot of calls and communication. There was some, you know, business emailing going back and forth, but it, there, there wasn't a lot of, uh, it, it was a social lockdown in a lot of ways. Uh, and so, no, there, there, there wasn't that 
rush of, uh, well, you're an expert in the healthcare system, you know, having been through it, what do you think? No, but uh, I'm an urban historian, and the conversations I have with my colleagues and my peers uh, is those conversations focus on what does this mean historically for the city of New York? How does it fit into a pattern of New York City's history in terms of history, economics, and social arrangements? And what does this mean for the future of New York City? Uh, Especially, uh, oddly enough, when you want to know the future of something, you you don't ask a uh, an astrologist. You ask a historian to look into the future. And uh, I, the the signs of what has happened to New York uh, do not point to a uh, prosperous future in the near term. Well, we talked about this somewhat earlier off the air. Um, Tale of Two Cities it exists, and I know you're very wary of that. So. Tell me, what what can be done? We're seeing some part of the city operating. We're seeing a lot of it being destructed. So how can we bring everybody back together so there really isn't a two-city kind of system going on here? One of the things I pointed out in my uh, impressions of Elmhurst Hospital, and, and it was the impressions I got almost immediately as I was coming out of my realization of what had been going on, was the incredible cooperation among all of the people I saw at Elmhurst. Uh, these were uh, uh, Christian, Jewish, and Muslim individuals. They were speaking languages I'd never heard. They were uh, from the Caribbean, and they were from Asia, and they were from Europe, and they were from Middle America, it seems like. And I was just so impressed the the point is that they all pulled together in a common purpose. What's impressed me about the COVID experience, and it's impressed me in a negative sense, is that this experience has not pulled us together in a sense that we are all in this boat together. So everyone start pulling the oars. I haven't felt that. I have felt uh, almost a, a, a a drive to divide uh, New Yorkers. Uh, and, and, and it's also a national sense, of course. I mean, but just thinking in terms of New York, it's a sense of, well, it's hitting these people and it's hitting those people and these people are privileged and those people, uh, it, it's like, no, uh, we're all in it together. And I haven't gotten a sense that we should put aside racial, ethnic, linguistic income differences, religious differences uh, right now in order to pull our city out of uh, uh, the the problem that we're in. And uh, for this, I really fault the uh, political climate in New York City and the political leadership, which is not leading us in a let's pull this together kind of way. It's leading us into a this group versus that group. Well, you are a historian and you follow the political history. So is this the worst time politically that you've ever seen? I mean, you, you talk about how you've been doing this for four decades. Is this the worst time, though, or are we just getting to the worst time of, of our city right now? 
every time is the worst time if you talk to the people who are there. And it's certainly worse than it was when I was a young man. Uh, but no, um, to say this is the worst time, is it worse than the Great Depression when we had an economic downturn of 20% unemployment for uh, almost 10 years uh, and thousands of people lost their homes to foreclosure and, uh, and the like? That was a tough time. Uh, going through the uh, great crime rise from the 1960s and through the 1980s uh, and the fiscal crisis of the 1970s when New York City was hemorrhaging population. We lost, uh, the, the population went down by 800,000 during the decade of the 1970s, the only time New York City has ever lost population. Uh, and those were very trying times. But New York City found a way to pull itself together and out of it. And I'm, uh, I'm confident New York City will survive, obviously, but in what shape? Uh, what are we going to lose as a result of the last six months uh, that will be very difficult to, to regain? That's, those are the, the questions that I have. Well, and I've got to ask you about the decisions that were made in this state alone. I mean, you've seen with the health care stuff, you saw electives being designated, what's elective, what's not. And, and I thought suspending elective surgeries was life-threatening in and of itself. And maybe you disagree or agree, I don't know. But I feel like it was leaning too hard on canceling electives that, you know, last year you might not have been able to get the care you did, to be honest with you. In the first place, elective surgery is the uh, bread and butter. Uh, that, that's somehow the profit margin of a lot of hospitals. So by cutting elective surgery, you immediately put them in a financial hole. So that, that's number one. Secondly, by, uh, it was perhaps uh, a good idea to, to temporarily cancel elective surgery because we didn't know the extent of the virus. But I think that it persisted probably much longer than it needed to. Uh, and uh, I think that the reality of the disease, as severe as it was, has eased, certainly in New York City and New York State. It has eased. And yet the attention to stopping the disease has not. I mean, it was originally... We have to lock everything down until we uh, flatten the curve. Well, New York cooperated in a remarkably unified way and flattened the curve. It was really horrendous in March and April, and then it started going down, and it continued to really go down. Mm. And yet the government has persisted in saying, lock down, lock down. We all have to be afraid. Well, that wasn't the deal when we started this. But epidemiologically, what are the facts? I don't, it, it, it's been so contradictory that it's hard to, uh, hard to piece it together. Well, you got your doctorate, but it was not necessarily in medicine. So what did you get your doctorate in? And are you are you even more prouder knowing the history of this that you are able to talk about, hey, we, we can rebound? Like, how proud are you to have the doctorate you have in, in the field of urban studies and, and whatnot? 
Yes, I have a doctorate in uh, urban American history from the CUNY Graduate Center. I'm not the kind of doctor who can do you any good whatsoever. Uh, it's just a mere PhD. But on the other hand, it gives me a, a seat from which to examine New York City over time. And uh, that is, uh, that's ever entertaining, shall we say. Well, do you do you find how interesting it is? All these different players are coming back. We see Rudy Giuliani defending his anti-crime unit. We see de Blasio saying, everybody before me was the worst with this, and yet he looks like he's the worst. So <laughs> what do you make of him pretty much trashing not only his predecessors, but the department, the police department itself? It's not a good time to be a police officer. Can we just say that? Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> The, uh, what happened in Minneapolis was absolutely inexcusable, and it was the worst kind of policing. It was a caricature of bad policing is how bad it was. I mean, you, you, just, you, you just can't believe that peace officers would behave in such a, a bullying fashion, but that's what we had. The result of that, the extreme violence of some of the protests, uh, the vandalism and looting, uh, Fordham Road in the Bronx was devastated by looters. Uh, and uh, downtown Manhattan, Soho, completely boarded up. And this wasn't a, this wasn't uh, just vandalism. This was criminal gangs seizing the opportunity. Um, that kind of public disorder has had no political pushback that I can find uh, from the mayor to the city council, uh, anywhere, from uh, even the newspapers, uh, except maybe the Wall Street Journal, the New York Post, uh, have had some pushback. But for the political leadership of the city, there was not a loud and affirmative condemnation of that kind of uh, destructive behavior. Um, it was almost excused. Hearing the mayor said, well, of course there's a lot of shooting. People have been locked up because of COVID. I can't believe he said that. That is just so irresponsible and, and mistaken. <laughs> you know, a lot of people right. were, were locked down and, you know, we haven't gone out with our uh, 44 automatics, so I don't know uh, what I don't know who he's pandering to, but it isn't to the middle class, homeowning, tax-paying uh, citizenry. Well, we can't, you know, we talk about leadership, and at the same time, he's blaming that. He's also saying almost everything of this is Trump's fault, and I don't agree with putting all of this destruction here in New York on the president. Um, is that correct not to, or what are your views? I mean, I think he's also been on the other side of the spectrum and he should be in the middle more, uh, with all of this actually. Uh, I've been a New Yorker for decades and decades and I have endured Donald Trump that whole time. And now he's inflicted himself on the rest of the nation, but to blame Donald Trump, for what happened in the wake of the uh, the, the wake of the, the the killing in Minneapolis is just irresponsible. 
because it was happening in the city of New York. And the mayor and the city council of the city of New York have an obligation, first of all, to maintain public order. I don't mean to oppress uh, populations and to suppress opinion and to lock down personal freedoms. I don't mean that. I just mean public order on the streets of New York so that the citizenry are safe and property is protected. And that was clearly not happening over the last, uh, uh, you know, in early June. Uh, the, the number of storefronts in Manhattan that were boarded up. I mean, if you can't protect Macy's, for God's sake. Right. Macy's. Oh, my gosh. It's just... I mean, we're not talking about Fordham Road. It's Macy's. It's the center of the universe. And yet, what do we have? We have rampant looting, uh, even there. So I, it's been an enormous failure. And just historically, this is the first time any mayor or political leadership of the city has not immediately come down on the rights of the public to uh, a, a safe and secure public realm uh, and against the criminal behavior that was uh, going on. Uh, there has never been a time in New York City's history. Well, maybe Mayor Fernando Wood encouraging the uh, uh, secessionist thoughts during the uh, Civil War. Okay, maybe that, but nothing since. Professor, on that note, do you think, uh, because I rollerbladed through New York a couple times and I've seen the vibrance that's still coming back with the outdoor dining uh, and whatnot, but overall, and you can weigh in on that, the, the, the contrast we're seeing between outdoor dining coming back and the looting, I don't know if you had any thoughts on that, that, that kind of picture that we have now here in New York. It's a nice baby step to see that outdoor dining is coming back. I was, I, I thought it was just great that the bars were opening and giving giving everyone, you know, beers to go. I just thought that was a riot. Uh, and I didn't think, uh, I thought that was a nice step, a way of bringing back vibrant city. What, what is the effect of this pandemic on the way New York City functions? If we continue to live in our city as if the primary purpose of our behavior is to prevent COVID-19 infections, New York City cannot survive. Uh, New York City thrives on density and congestion and activity and people. Uh, we thrive on tourism. Uh, one industry, the, the theaters, are completely shut down uh, mm. for It'll, it'll be like nine months, ten months that the theaters will be shut down. Not only the theaters and the actors and the stagehands and the like, but the costume suppliers. And then you have all the restaurants around in the theater district. And it's just not those businesses that are not, ha you know, serving, you know, plates of lasagna for, before the show. What you have is every one of those meals was a sales tax revenue for the city of New York. So all of that revenue is evaporated, doesn't exist, and there's no way to recover that. 
it will because many of those restaurants won't return. Many of the tourists won't return. Hotels, all of the hotels have hotel taxes. Uh, real estate, real estate taxes, um, real estate transaction taxes, all of that. If the economy is stopping, that money isn't flowing. And so the city of New York is facing a facing a Niagara Falls of uh, uh, it doesn't you know it doesn't look good <laughs> as we approach the cataract. Right. Well, let me ask you: Don't you think though that if they really want to save the economy, they can flip the switch, so to speak, quicker to go back on as fast as they turn it? Said we have to go off the grid for a while. Like, can't they just? snap a finger and try and do this right to get everything open little by little instead of going long-term with this? Yeah. I mean, there, there are choices you can make. We can start fast. Oh, open fully, open partially, open gradually, open suddenly. But what is missing at the moment uh, is uh, an understanding of just how uh, this whole situation is not the way it was in February. What I mean is everyone, white collar, the service industry has been working from home, working distantly, instead of working in offices. You've got a business, uh, a law firm that has, that takes four floors of a midtown high rise. Well, you their, know, their attorneys are working from home. We don't need four floors anymore. We need one floor, one floor with a couple of conference rooms, and that's it. So who's going to rent those other three floors? I mean, you also have businesses where you had large floor plates of dozens of people working on a large floor plate. People are not certain that in a COVID environment they want to work in a crowded office. So we don't need all of that you know, people aren't going to work there, so who's going to rent it? Right. These are the kinds of long-term issues. Maybe I'm wrong. Wouldn't it be nice to be wrong? But I would like to hear someone thinking about this or at least discussing what the economic implications long-term are. Do you think blaming the landlords of all these places is the right move? Because de Blasio keeps saying, well, you got to let the small business owner back in. And you can't get And I'm like, you don't even want to help the small business people. So why are you even going after the landlord? Like, I don't know. I feel like that's irresponsible, too. Uh, we all hate landlords. Let's, let's say that immediately. Landlords are inherently evil people, right? <laughs> On the other hand, landlords own property. Uh, landlords support businesses and provide homes, and landlords pay property taxes. Mm. There has not been a move to have a property tax holiday. They're saying people don't have to pay rent, but they haven't told the landlords, and you don't have to pay property taxes. That's the, that's the troubling aspect. That's the political decision. And that just makes uh, that just makes no sense because the landlords they're stuck too. They have to pay water bills, they have to pay electric, they have to pay property taxes, they have to pay sewage. They have all of these issues that have not stopped, mm. and yet 
you know, the, the other thing is, under these conditions, a business can look at it and say, you know, we don't have to be in Midtown. I think we can move to a less expensive place in the suburbs. All of our white-collar people will be happy. Uh, they'll, they'll be closer to their homes in suburbia. So we don't need Midtown. But homeowners, property owners, can't pick up their house and move their house out to Long Island or some other lower tax place. Uh, they are stuck. And so property taxes are a major part of what keeps the city, uh, what keeps the city afloat. And if, Mm -hmm. if Midtown is not the office capital, the way it was, if Midtown's businesses do not come back and fill those towers the way they did, you are going to have a lot of good loans go bad. And so what would that mean for the city uh, on top of what we're already dealing with? Uh, All it means is that we are uh, looking at a, we're looking at an income shortfall. And I don't see that as a short-term problem. It is looking like it's a long-term problem. Well, and I know your college kind of just said, and all colleges in the CUNY sort of just shut the doors pretty quick. So do you think your college can re you know rebound from this or what what's going on uh, John Jay where from where you're sitting well the uh the city university of new york was like the public hospital system uh uh squeezed for funding it it was it did not have uh full funding for faculty or student aid or everything else i mean it was uh, all of our colleges were running deficits in the millions of dollars uh, already before this. Um, but right now, no one in the city university is making moves to reopen. Uh, the college, the colleges can't move without CUNY, and CUNY can't move without the state. And so uh, until the state says they can open uh CUNY is not going to open. Uh, the difficulty is I can work from home. I'm a librarian. Uh, students and faculty still can contact me and I can still assist them and, and the library resources are still available. But it assumes that someone knows what they're doing. And what happened when the uh, colleges went from in-person teaching to distance learning is that among the faculty I talked to, uh, at least a quarter of the students just disappeared. Just, uh, they they never completed the course, they never checked in. And uh, what what you have is not every student has a place where they have Wi-Fi and they can do their schoolwork on a computer uh, the way that they could at school. And so, we lost uh, an awful lot of students who were primed to succeed, and now they're set back. Mm. So the online classes will be good for those who are capable of doing it, but for the unprepared population, and CUNY serves an underprepared population, it's much more of a challenge. I didn't get to even ask you this because I've been waiting for some commentary on it. The first saying we can't allow uh, 
immigrants to stay here if they're in the colleges, they have to go back. Now that's been rescinded. I mean, what's the importance of that whole talk about whether to send them back or not if these schools are online? Like, what was the controversy exactly surrounding all of that? Well, is it a nice thing to do or a not nice thing to do? Can can we start with, right. like, how, how can you be so not nice to to the students who are committing to be here? And, and let's just identify who are these so-called international students. Uh, they're not people who have decided that you know, instead of staying in Lisbon, they're going to spend a semester in New York uh, going to CUNY. These are people who are uh, who were born elsewhere, but they are uh, not necessarily American citizens. And that's who CUNY serves in, in, a, in a large degree. That's our population. And we're not talking about foreigners. We're talking about American kids. That's who a lot of these international students are. They're American kids who happen to have parents from somewhere else. Wow. And I don't even mean whether they came here legally or not legally. That's a different issue. Even if they came here legally, that's their situation. And so these are people who uh, are committing themselves to learning in New York City. And in the process, they're becoming Americans. And so to say that they're somehow alien and they should go away if, you know, and do their digital learning from Beijing is just, uh, is just cruel. And I was so relieved that the uh, rule has been rescinded because it was stupid. It was. And I also know that the NCA has been trying to do things great for our students, student athletes as well, with all of that happening. So we'll see how that goes. Um, do you, you've also, you've been here for 40 years. So do you think watching back, looking back and knowing that, yes, our city has gone red before with the so blue, so extreme progressive that seems de Blasio is, is there a chance we flip back to even a purple, uh, kind of way? Uh, I don't, uh, I don't see much, uh, uh, I don't see much of a red state in New York State's future, and certainly not in New York City's future. Uh, just in terms of politics, in the fiscal crisis of the mid-1970s, you had uh, Republican legislature uh, and Democratic governor, a Democratic city, but you had Republican representatives within the city of New York working on the city's behalf. And that has now broken apart. Uh, there, there was a sense in uh, the 1970s, you know, some said, ah, let New York City go. We all hate it anyway. But stronger, stronger heads prevailed and convinced them that it's not just New York City that will go down if it declares bankruptcy. It's going to be something much, much bigger for the state of New York, and we can't have that. What does it mean in the world if New York City goes bankrupt? I mean, that, that's just an image that you can't have. And what you had then in the 1970s was a pulling together to uh, uh, restore fiscal health to the city of New York. Now, a lot of my CUNY colleagues uh, resent that solution because it imposed tuition on CUNY and uh, it's 
supposedly the end of uh, the progressive city, but uh, I just, I don't buy any of that. I think that if New York City hadn't pulled itself together in the 1970s, it would be, it, it just, we wouldn't have had the recovery miracle of the 90s and the 2000s. Well, why you talk- said, mm-hmm. today, I don't see the political leadership or the realistic leadership that will make the hard decisions that we need to make sure that the city and the state of New York remain solvent. Well, there's a couple more things. You know, in the 70s, we were told drop dead by, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, and uh, and so I think that was Ford, that, that era with Ford. But I feel like if Trump says, no, we're not going to be funding, I feel like he's kind of in the right there, that why are we going to encourage you and give you federal funding if you've let your businesses themselves destroy? Like, I don't know. I think we have it coming if we don't get federal funds at the moment. Well, I don't, I don't think we have it coming for retribution from uh, uh, representatives from Arkansas and Alabama. I, I, I really don't. I think that uh, everyone has to recognize what an economic engine New York City has been for the nation. It's, it's our, our global uh, economic hub in so many ways. So it's really short-sighted to, to throw it under. But at the same time, the, the progressive leadership of the city of New York uh, does not seem to recognize the economic realities that this uh, disease environment, this pandemic, has thrust upon us. Mm. And uh, those, those discussions are not taking place. What we are getting is a lot of talk about uh, racial inequalities and economic inequalities and inequality inequalities and privilege and uh, it just, none of that. Mm. Uh, uh, none of that is designed to give us a city where we can pull together and get ourselves out of this. Professor Kressler, we're talking Jeffrey Kressler. He, Kressler, he's from John Jay College, the Lloyd Seeley Library, and uh, a doctor as well in, in the city urban studies. So let me ask you, um, you had said a term earlier when we were off the air and supposed to be on the air. Anyway, uh, the builder uppers versus the terror downers. And I'd love to get you on record saying that phrase and what you actually mean <laughs> by that. Uh Well, um, New York City has has always been characterized by those who want to do more, to make more, to uh, create a better city, to uh, generate new ideas, the creativity, the dynamism, the economic dynamism, the artistic dynamism, all contributing to the vibrant city, building the city up. And right now, all of the voices, the dominant voices in the political discussion are, shall we say, the terror downers, Uh, not only literally tearing down statues, but tearing down institutions, tearing down individuals, tearing down our our city's heritage, tearing down uh, our city's values, and uh, not only our city's values, but the values of an awful lot of New Yorkers. And you're getting, uh, uh, I mean, how many New Yorkers think it's a good idea to physically assault police officers, uh, which is what happened yesterday, uh, uh, Wednesday, during a clash between Black Lives Matter and 
uh, pro-police demonstrators. Uh, the Black Lives Matter people physically were assaulting police officers. It, it, I mean, who thinks that's a good idea? Um, why hasn't the mayor come out more forcefully in defense of his police officers and public order? Uh, so the, the fact that the terror downers are getting such press and the status quo builder-uppers, the ones who just work hard, go to work, uh, pay their taxes, raise their kids, those people are invisible again. Mm. I don't want to... I mean, maybe that is back to the silent majority of the 1960s, but it's. I, I certainly have confidence that there are people who think that way. Well, I know there's a lot of builder-uppers, and uh, you're right. Uh, when you said, who would, uh, you know condone that kind of behavior against cops my response would be you'd be surprised right because there's actually a lot that would be okay with this yeah well there is <laughs> yes uh i i'm not surprised i i teach in the city university so uh we hear all sorts of opinion mm. well and i know that you've covered the nypd extensively as well in your history so tell us a little about the transformation and has it really been a bad department, or is this all overblown? Well, what set this off, uh, the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, was a, a terrible example of police, police brutality. It was inexcusable, and uh, everyone was genuinely outraged. I don't think anyone was sitting around thinking, hey, that was a good thing to do. I, nobody. I mean, that, that's, that's the point about New Yorkers. We, we know bad when we see it. Now, to characterize the New York City Police Department as being as bad as that, is just, it's mistaken in the present, and it's mistaken in terms of the history of the NYPD. Yes, the NYPD was brutal toward African Americans in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Uh, yes, of course, police brutality was uh, normal. But since the 1990s, there has been a revolution in policing in New York City, and where in the 1970s, the police fired thousands of rounds from their weapons every year. Today, the, the police department fires dozens mm. at, at most. Then there were many people killed every year by police bullets. Now it's very rare that, that someone is shot by the MIPD compared to the number of interactions and so forth. And every one of those can be categorized as a tragedy. But what you have is an enormous transformation in policing uh, that, that made New York City really a leader nationwide in urban policing. What's happened now is an attack on that NYPD. And you see not only the widespread a number of fresh retirements among the veterans uh, bailing out of the NYPD. Uh, but you also see a lack of leadership. It, the civilian leadership is not giving the NYPD direction as to how to maintain public order and, in fact, is undermining the NYPD when it tries to maintain order. 
And so the, the police officers on the beat are really stuck between do we act, do we not act? Uh, as soon as the police started pulling back, the number of shootings had gone up in a lot of neighborhoods. It's really frightening. Not quite as bad as Chicago, but we're giving them uh, uh, a run in terms of the number of shootings every weekend. And now some people are saying we need more police. We need more police. Well, you do need more police or you don't want the police. Mm. And the problem is that the don't want police voices, the terror downers, are the ones who have been getting all of the press. And the we need the police. We don't approve of these killings. We're decent people. That crowd are being drowned out. Big time. And, you know, I just kind of rolled past the autonomous zone to see how crazy it was. And then they hear the cops can't really do anything if they act up. It's just, it's heartbreaking. But I think we share, what we have in common, Professor, is that you and I love this city so much, we almost feel a duty to spot the light, uh, spotlight on, on a bad situation in hopes to make it better, right? That's why we're talking. And we hope someone's listening. <laughs> ah, definitely. All right. Uh, one last thing. The Tale of Two Cities, we're here. Just give us a, a bit of optimism. I know you're you're kind of feeling a little bleak about it, but there's got to be something optimistic you feel for the city that we can recover from all this. Uh, New Yorkers will make it work. Uh, the city is the people, and uh, the New Yorkers will bring it back. Uh, I just hope that there isn't as far back to go as it looks like it's going to be. I hope that we can put the brakes on the decline. And it's not just the economic problems. I think there's a psyche in New York where we have uh, lost confidence in the greatness of the city. And instead, it's just, uh, if I could just, I mean, my, my friends and colleagues don't respect this at all, but really we're tearing down Teddy Roosevelt from the Museum of Natural History. Is, is that really where we are? I mean, it's uh, where we're, we're tearing down, uh, we're questioning uh, such an icon of New York. Uh, I, I don't know. It, the, the tearing down of history, institutions, and through COVID, our economy makes it uh, uncomfortable. But I am confident that uh, when the when we bottom out, we will rise again. Well, that is that gives me hope heading into the weekend. So thank you, Professor Jeffrey Kressler. And by the way, people can still read your article, right? Because I'm sure it's still trending. I'm sure it's still making an impact in people's lives. If you go onto the Daily News website and just uh, enter my name, K-R-O-E-S-S-L-E-R, the article will pop up. And they can find you also at the John Jay College uh, Library website. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, Professor Kressler, thanks for doing this today. It feels like a marathon of a day, but thank you for doing this, and we will talk to you again soon. Okay, Alex. It's a pleasure. Thank you. You got it. I'm Alex Garrett. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon.